Welcome to Redemption Hill. We are in the middle of a series that we have we've entitled Context and Conjecture, or really Context versus Conjecture. And um, we're, this is our third week, fourth week into it, and uh, I'll just keep talking like God until they figure out how that works. Um, we started off our series with Romans 10.9, which is, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you shall be saved. We talked about what conjecture do people use with this verse. And then the next week, we talked about Matthew 7.1, this verse, judge not lest ye be judged. There's, there's tons of conjecture um, that people read into a verse like Matthew 7.1. Um, is Jesus a moral progressive or is he actually giving us the right way to make assessments and judgments about things, people, and, and events? Um, and this week, we're going to be looking at a very, very exciting verse, a very interesting verse, one that is fraught with internet dialogue and all kinds of stuff written about this, this verse. This is probably one of the most... Um, and I would say probably the most controversial one in this series, and of course I get the lucky straw of getting it. With his stripes, we are healed. And then next week, we're going to be being into Romans 8.28. Um, all things work together for good. Those who love God are called according to his purpose. What does that really mean? And the reason why we, we, we picked these verses and the reason why we came up with this series is because as, as pastors, we, we really want to help lead you and others in how to read your Bibles. Um, we we found and you find probably that, that there's certain things that you take to Scripture, certain biases, certain certain ideas, certain certain desires, and we often read into God's Word stuff that may not be there, and so we we do that. I do that. We do that. People inside the church and outside the church do that. We do damage to the Word of God, and so therefore do damage to ourselves. And often we make ourselves look much bigger than we should, and we read things into God that really aren't true of Him. So, as we prayed and thought about this, this series, these, these aren't just the verses that we have the biggest pet peeves about. Um, there would be others if that was the case. But these in, in particular, we felt would help us as a church address the Word of God with awe, with respect, with joy, and just a little bit of fear. Not, not a fear that would cause you to recoil, but a fear like, wow, I really need help to understand what God is saying. Because maybe what I initially think may not be, be the case. So... We're going to dig into, with his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53.5. You can go ahead to the next, next slide. What is assured to us in this verse? Is it physical or spiritual healing? And just a little confession here. I've, I've probably spent more time praying, worrying, thinking, working on our thoughts as I prepared this, probably more than any message I've done here. Um, just because I know that there is so much emotion, so much energy, so, so many feelings, and our lives are intertwined with 
physical sickness. We live with it. We are hurt by it. We want deliverance from those things. But it is essential that we approach this verse and we read our lives in light of God's Word, not read God's Word in light of our lives. It's so important that, that, that we do that with this verse specifically. Um, so as we go through it, I just want to apologize up front. I know that we have lots of opinions, and I'll probably offend and upset some of you, and that's great, because that's what the Word of God does. And there might be some things that might need to be adjusted in what I'm saying, but hey, we're learning. So let's hear from God this morning, and let's embrace His truth. Um, go ahead, go to the next slide if you would. Um, Here's the broad conjecture I want us to have in our minds as we go through this. This is where most people that are taking this verse, this verse specifically, with his stripes, talking about Jesus' wounds on the cross, this is where they take it. Go back to the... There you go. It is God's intention that Christians not suffer physical illness. And He has secured temporal physical healing through wounding His Son Jesus for those who would have sufficient faith. Please note the word temporal in that sentence. He has, it's God's intention that Christians not suffer physical illness and He has secured temporal physical healing through wounding His Son Jesus. The, the, if you have any doubt about this common conjecture, 30 seconds on the internet will belay your fears. Um, just one of one <clears throat> individual in particular, I will not say his name because we don't need to do that necessarily here. <clears throat> he said this, he said, the longer I study God's word, the more convinced I am that a Christian should not be sick. That is conjecture. Um, here's the context that we'll be aiming at this morning. Jesus on the cross has suffered the wounds that we should have received in punishment for our sin. Therefore, God is satisfied with Jesus' stripes, His wounds, and no longer holds our sins against us, thus healing our sickness, estrangement from God. You know, it's, it's important for us, and I want you to know this, that at Redemption Hill, we, we focus on the things that God has given the church and that Christians have held in common for centuries. It is, it is not our goal to, to pick one part of Christianity and to, to pit ourselves against it. But we want to hold all, hold all the essentials that God has given that and Christians have held in common. But in this instance, it is instructive for us to take a look at how the church in Mass has misread the Scripture. Because it, it, it may not seem a big deal to you right now. This, that, that difference may not seem that large. But I assure you, and, and my hope is that as we go through this, that you'll see the consequences of this conjecture. And that you'll be able to recognize it, not just in, in this teaching, but, but other Scripture twisting as well. Let's, let's, let's go to Isaiah 53. This is where you see this. Isaiah 53, and people go straight to this part. With His stripes, we are healed. That's 
It's amazing that, that out of this amazing passage of Scripture, the most beautiful and detailed description of the Gospel in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, it's like, it's like our, our, our eyes and our hearts and our lives are beamed in on this verse. And we read into it. He's talking about physical healing. But go to the next slide and we'll see the context of the verse. Isaiah 53. Before we read this, we'll talk a little bit about Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. God had spoken to him and he is predicting in his large book what is going to happen to Israel because they've been disobedient and unfaithful to God. He's predicting that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II, is going to come and take them into captivity or exile. The second half of Isaiah is written to comfort the children of Israel while they're in exile under Nebuchadnezzar II. So Isaiah is saying how, and God is speaking through him, what comfort should God give His people when they're suffering in a foreign land, in a foreign place, Away from, their, away from the lands that they've known. And they're in exile for 60 years. So God is speaking to them. And, and a note here too, remember that we take verses not just in context of the books that they're in, we also take them in context of the Bible as a whole. And as we look at this Scripture or any other Scripture, like I said a couple weeks ago, about the two friends on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walked with them, and it said that he explained to them, starting in Moses and all the prophets, everything concerning himself and all the scriptures. Everything in the Word of God is tied to the person of Jesus and what he's done for us. Now, let's read here. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Remember, Isaiah is thinking about, and he is, and he is being taught of God about someone coming in the future. Yes, there is, there is a deliverer coming to the people of God through the next king, Cyrus. And he defeats Nebuchadnezzar, and he brings in the Persian regime, and he lets God's people go. But Isaiah here is talking to a greater and a deeper, more wonderful, more eternal deliverer. He was wounded for our transgressions, and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. With his stripes, we are healed. The question, what is this healing? What is this healing about? The question that we have to ask is, what is our real problem? Most, not most, many, Many times when we use the Word of God or the Gospel to prescribe a solution, we often misjudge that solution because we have misdiagnosed the problem. Is physical suffering, is physical illness 
our real problem. Jesus certainly didn't think so. Oftentimes, he's, drunk, he's not discounting physical illness, but he's always bringing us back to what is the real problem with our souls and with our hearts before God. Matthew 10, 28, he says, Do not fear him who can just destroy the body, but fear him being God who can destroy both the body and the soul. Our fear should not be in our physical circumstance. Our fear should always be of God. Jesus, he's teaching in a house, packed, standing room only. There's a guy that's been paralyzed, and his friends want to get him to Jesus. Desperate to get him to Jesus, because Jesus has been healing like a madman. Healing those who are sick. Casting out evil spirits. He is, I mean, think of the TV show he would have had. Okay? He's... His friends are trying to get him close to Jesus. You can't get into the house. So you know the story. Many of you know the story. Climb up on the roof, open up the tiles, and lower the guy into the room. You think, wow, I mean, just, I'm thinking of so many different things here, but the friends, I mean, they've they've worked it, they've lowered them in. I mean, the guy's in there, gosh, I'm finally going to get in front of Jesus. And what does he say? What does he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I wonder if that's what he was thinking. I wonder if that was what he was expecting. The first thing he said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith. I mean, it blows our paradigm. And then he goes on to say, of course, get up and walk. But why does he say get up and walk? He said, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What is the guy's problem? Because that guy, no, even if he gets up and walks and walks in health for the rest of the days, he's going to die. And his problem is not his illness. His problem is his rebellion against God and the fact that the wrath of God still remains on him. That's the big deal. Jesus is always bringing us back to that. I had a conversation recently with um, a neighbor who was trying to get his head around, who is Jesus, really? And he was saying, you know, I, I love his teachings. You know, I really, I really enjoy this morality. But you know, I, I don't really get this whole death, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection thing. It doesn't make sense. And we, and we got into it, and I found out he really didn't believe the miracles, and he didn't really believe all those specific things. And so, but the question came down to, oh, okay. So what is it about Jesus? Well, First of all, if you just like the good things he did, and you just like the miracles, and that's why he came. Jesus came to feed 5,000 people with just lunch, and he came to do miracles and heal people. If that was the reason that he came, the purpose, he left, you know, Jesus left, just left the planet, right? You can't call him a good man. You can't call him good. He had the power to heal anybody he wanted to. He had the power to feed anybody through miracles, and he left the planet. You can't call him a good man. You must call him an evil man because he had all the potential and power to do good, and he didn't do it. He didn't stick around to heal everybody. He didn't stick around to feed everybody. And he's not on the earth still doing it today. You can't call him a good man. So then, but, okay, this was a conversation. It's about 2 o'clock, and... 
in the morning at this point. But, so I can't remember it all. But the, um, so then the question was, well then, if he didn't come to do that, then why did Jesus come? That's a great question. Why did Jesus come? We're, we're going to get at that some more. What's the real problem? Transgressions, our iniquities, our war with God, our going astray from God. This is all in Isaiah. I haven't even left this slide. What do we deserve? We deserve punishment. We've walked away from God who is good and is holy and has never shown us any bit of change or there's no reason in Him that we should ever walk away from Him, but we have. In our rebellion and pride, we have. And what do we deserve? We deserve wounds. We deserve punishment. And Jesus took those for us. That's how we are healed. We are healed from our rebellion. We're healed from walking away from God. We are healed from our estrangement from Him. And that is all this passage is about. Yet, if we choose to ignore all that and continue to look and read into the verse, with His stripes we are healed. And think that that confirms and assures that God's will is for us to live in health and wholeness and to be healed in every instant. And we are, we are, we are going to confront some serious consequences. First one just being that we're going to misinterpret the Word of God. Here's where it gets really ugly. Really ugly. What if God doesn't heal? First thing, what is the first thing we're going to do? God doesn't heal. If, if He's promised to heal in every instance, what happens if He doesn't heal? If you are not made whole when you pray? Are you going to blame just about everybody? Let's start with your first blame. You're going to blame God. You're going to blame Him first. And you're going to be disappointed. You say, wait a minute, I thought God was like this. I thought God had promised this. And you were going to be disappointed with God. I'm sure you guys have experienced this. Those of you that are married, clearly. Um, have you ever had an expectation on your spouse that you for sure knew was the right expectation, but then based on their behavior, you can tell that they don't know that that's your expectation of them? Examples may be coming to your head. Not only should they, not only do you assume that they, not only do you assume that they know it, so much so that you haven't said anything to them. And so much so that every single time they don't meet your expectation, don't do what you think they ought to do, you don't say anything. Think about month after month, year after year, that building up, and imagine the kind of disappointment you will build up toward your spouse because of that. But it's not their fault. One, they didn't know that that expectation was laid upon them. And two, it may not be the right expectation for them anyway. It's just something that you happen to have. It wasn't agreed upon in the beginning. They didn't know. Disappointment is rife in that situation. We can do the same thing with God. We can expect things of Him that He never assured us He would do. 
we would look upon him and go, God, this is the way your grace is going to look in my life. This is the way your power is going to look in my life. We may not meet your expectations for grace and power. Don't be disappointed. Don't be disappointed. Think about it this way. If, if God's approval with me, think about it, if in, the midst of our, if in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our illness, if we equate God being with me with healing, if there is no healing, then we must equate that God is not with me. And that is so far from the truth. We're going to see that some more in, in a moment. The second thing is going to be doubt. If you can't trust the death of Christ, again, if this is true, if the conjecture is true, if, if I can't trust the death of Christ to bring me physical healing in every instance, then how can I trust the death of Christ to be payment for my sin? If it breaks down here, doesn't it break down here too? If the atonement is broken, then how am I to lean on Him for the forgiveness of my sins if I'm also supposed to lean on Him for my physical healing now and I don't get it? Does that make sense? Do you see how that that could cause you to distrust what God has done for us in Christ? It, 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 It starts to break it in our minds. And you also tend to think that you have to add to what God has done for us for you to receive the benefit of the cross. What goes along with this conjecture is that that healing comes to those who have enough faith. If we start believing that God has done this much, and we need to do our part for us to receive the benefits of what God has done for us, you have just created another gospel. This is where this doctrine gets so damaging. Is that you then start to think that even though God has done all of this, I still have to add my contribution for what God has said of me to be true. If you start doing that with healing, then what's to stop you from doing that with the other supposed benefits of the atonement? It it, it breaks the whole thing. And we're going to see more as we go on why that's so damaging. Um, You're going to blame others if God doesn't heal you. Someone said something over you. There's someone in your past did something they shouldn't have done. The mind can think of so many things. You can blame Satan, so you can look for ways to defeat Satan outside of what God has done for us. That gets really deep, and I won't go much farther on that. Blame circumstances. I couldn't get to the right person. I couldn't get to the right meeting. I couldn't get to the right teaching. I couldn't turn on the TV program in time. You can blame everybody. But when it really gets bad is when you start blaming yourself. You start blaming yourself for this. You did not have enough faith. Maybe, there, maybe I haven't repented of all my sins. Maybe there's something else that I have to unearth that's causing this. If, if God has promised this, and it says we are healed, then something must be broken, and it must be me. If it's not God, then it must be me. And so then we dig deeper into ourselves, and we keep digging a hole and a hole and a hole, and if nothing ever happens, not only do we suffer from the physical ailment, now we suffer from guilt, condemnation, and absolute despair. Because there's nothing we can do. Does that make sense? 
Here's another twist on this. We, we refuse the grace that God has for us in our suffering. If we say that all the grace that God has for us in suffering is to heal us, then we, then we refuse the grace that God does have for us in the midst of it. We won't lean on it. We won't pull on it. We won't experience it. And the guys that espouse this thing so strongly make no room for it in their lives. The grace of God means that you are miraculously healed every time. Paul. Apostle Paul. Given the most clear, powerful revelation of God and what He's done for us in Christ. As you read his history, read his story, the things that God showed him, the revelations that he received from God himself were absolutely staggering. Absolutely staggering. And Paul's a human. So just like we all do, we, we, we are tempted to take the things that God has given us and think more about ourselves because God has given us them. We, part of our sinful nature is that we want to make much of ourselves. Well, some, at some point in Paul's life, I don't know when or where it started, he came down with, his, with an illness. He came down with something, and he prayed for God to heal him. He prayed over and over and over, and nothing happened. Reflecting on this, he said, you know, I think about this now, and he said, a thorn in my flesh was given to me. It's called a messenger of Satan. A thorn in the flesh was given to me huh? to keep me from exalting myself. To keep me from, from forgetting who God was. To, to keep me humble before God. That I would not exalt myself because of all that I've learned. Oh! In hindsight, he gets it. And he wrote this about it. He says, my grace... This is, this is what God is saying to him as a result of not healing him. This is in red words, if you have a red word Bible. It says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, far, far from the power of God being removed from him because of his weakness, it was actually added to him in his weakness. He had more power when he was sick than when he was healthy. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And as one of you that stands before you, I've, I have not suffered like many of you have. I do not have the sicknesses that some of you have. I don't have the cancer that some of you are dealing with. I don't have the heart disease that some of you are struggling with. But all I can say, I can look at Paul and say there is more power upon you and in you, in your weakness, than in your wholeness. I, I don't understand it. And, it sh- and I, I shake up here to say it to you. Here it is. This is God's promise for us in it. Not His only thing to hope for. This is what He assures us. What he assures us that his grace would be sufficient for you. As I as, as I think about this verse and how to apply the wounds of Christ to help 
I've asked the Holy Spirit, how can we really absorb the power of God in Christ's suffering for us and the healing that that brings us? The healing, the spiritual healing of our soul. How does this practically work out? Peter, in his first letter, he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. Or actually, this is in Turkey. These are the, the, the churches scattered throughout Turkey. He's in Rome, and he hears that the churches are being persecuted. He hears that the, church, the Christians in the churches are suffering because of the gospel. He hears that they're actually experiencing, experiencing verbal abuse. They're experiencing conflict in their relationship with others. There's, there's a, he mentions that in 1 Peter, he's talking about slaves who are being mistreated, not slaves. Not slaves like you may think of, but servants are being mistreated because of their place in Christ, because of their Christian faith, they're being mistreated. Seven times in his letter to them, he talks about suffering. So as, as a pastor, I'm thinking, okay, how can we comfort each other in the midst of physical suffering? How can we do it? I want to look at what Peter does. I want to look at how Peter comforts the church. What does Peter say? He's sitting in Rome. He's maybe heard the rumblings of the, 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 uh, the empire-wide persecutions that are coming upon the church. In just one year, in just one year, Rome, the fire of Rome will start, and Nero will blame Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome, destroyed large parts of Rome. And, it, and the first empire-wide persecution of Christians began. Christians were killed at will. Christians were put on posts, dipped in tar, and lit as street lamps in the Roman Empire for Christ. That's starting to happen. Maybe some rumblings of it, Peter's sensing. In just one year from him writing his letter, that starts to happen. So how does Peter comfort the church? How does he do it? He masterfully, masterfully ties together God's intended ends of our suffering and our comfort in them. Masterfully. Let's, let's go really quickly. Um, verse Peter, verse Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. This is how the letter opens up. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let me step back one second. Peter's talking about here about involuntary persecution and suffering from outside sources. What to, you may ask, okay, but we're talking about we're talking about here sickness, physical suffering in our bodies. We don't need to make we don't need to make a distinction between physical suffering because of an illness or physical suffering from persecution, whether it's from Nero or whether it's from heart disease. God's purpose. And the result of us losing our comfort, of losing our plan, losing our way, 
losing the things that we always held dear, losing the things that we never thought we'd lose, still the same. So everything that Peter says in here, we can take hold of in the midst of our physical suffering. John Piper says this, he says, whatever befalls us is for his glory and for our good, whether it's caused by enzymes or enemies. For our good. Whether it's caused by an enemy on the outside or whether it's caused by an enemy on the inside. So, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Being born again. You have an inheritance. You're being kept by the power of God. You're guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There are, there are things, the benefits of the cross, we, there is parts of our redemption that we will not get until the end. That is God's intended way. I don't know why he does it that way. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't always make sense to me. Why God would save us so gradually so painfully slow, but he does. And the reason why he does it is for his own glory. I struggle with this particularly because I want so much to say to you and to others when I hear what's going on in your lives, when I hear what's happening in a friend's life, either to their child or in their family or any kind of negative circumstance, any kind of thing that is causing them to suffer. I want so much to say, God promises that it's going to get better. I want so much to say that to you. Everything inside of me wants to say that. I don't like seeing people suffer. I don't like seeing you suffer. I don't like suffering. I want to read into this book that suffering will always be removed. I want so much to say it's going to get better. That's okay to pat you on the back. You know, it's going to get better. Whatever you show, it's going to get better can't say that to you. I can't say that. The gospel doesn't mean that it won't get better, but it doesn't mean that it has to. It doesn't mean that it will. Whether it gets good, whether it gets better, or whether it doesn't, God's promises are still the same. They are for you. They do not change. They are as strong for you as when things are good, And I would make a case that they are stronger for you when things are bad. I don't know why he chose to do it that way, but that's the way he does it. The gospel gets sweeter the darker things become. We're going to touch on this a little bit more in just a second. Let's go to the next part. So that, this is the next verse, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, remember, So for now, a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, because it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is something that happens in our suffering, in our pain, in our trusting. When we begin to trust things other than God, we lose joy and He loses glory. Let me tell you that God is passionately after both of those in your life. He's after your joy and He's after His glory. 
And when you trust in other things beside Him, you lose both. He is sovereignly appointed. Various trials bring about the purifying of what you trust in. He, he, he takes away the things that we tend to rely on the most so that we can begin to rely on Him and enjoy Him in deeper ways. And, you know, I wish He could do it without us going through crap. I wish, I, I wish there was a way. But here's the purpose of suffering. And the next verse, this is great. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace. Peter does not say, set your hope on the fact that things will get better. In fact, he's, I believe he's saying things are going to get worse. That's why he's writing the letter. Things are going to get worse. So set your hope completely on the grace that will be revealed to you in Christ Jesus. Set your hope completely on that day where every tear will be wiped away. Set your hope completely on that day where all pain that we feel in our bodies and feel in our hearts and in our souls are absolutely removed because God has completed the redemption of our spirit, soul, and our bodies. And He has removed sin and unrighteousness from the earth and has given us a new one where nothing but righteousness and goodness dwells. Jesus won that for us on the cross and that is the day that is coming. And Peter says here, this is the day to look for. Don't try to bring all the stuff that God has set up for us in this day. Don't try to drag it in the present so you can idolize it and take your eyes off of Him and that future day. There's a day coming. The pain will be removed. The tears will be wiped away. and Everything will be made right. day is coming. Set your hope completely, fully on that day. Next verse. You know, he, I talked about there's slaves that are, that are being unjustly treated in, in these churches. This is what he says. Go ahead and skip to the next verse up there. For to this, talking about experiencing unjust suffering for the name of Christ, to this you have been called. This is so interesting. He says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. See, far from the idea that because Jesus has suffered, we no longer suffer. He actually says, because Jesus has suffered, you will know a measure of suffering. Far from his suffering removing the potential and the opportunity to grow in grace through suffering, it actually says you will follow him in it. So he, what is Peter doing? He's drawing, his, he's drawing their attention to the sufferings of Christ. Now, but what is the ultimate comfort that Peter offers to these folks? Ultimate comfort. Go to the next verse. Talking about Jesus still. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting him to who judges right justly. Here we go. Peter pulls on Isaiah 53, quotes parts of it verbatim, summarizes other parts, and he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have all that Peter is saying kind of crescendos at this point, and he and he and he he's saying, "Church, lean into this assurance that by the wounds of Jesus you have been healed." Peter doesn't point them to the possibility of relief from their physical suffering, but he assures them of a greater, deeper, and immutable grace. Healed from what? Healed from sin? Healed from straying like a sheep? And how? By bearing in his body on the cross stuff that we should have experienced. Now, these churches are in the middle, are in the midst of suffering loss of their comforts, of loss of their lives in some instances, loss of their peace, loss of their income. They're suffering loss. How is Peter going to assure them that God has not left them? How is Peter going to assure them that God is still with them? Will he point to their faith? Will he say, listen, you believed, but, and because you believed, then God is still with you? But, but what if they're doubting? What if they're wavering? Is he, is he going to point them back to the decision that they made to follow Christ? But, but again, what if they're doubting the impact of their decisions? Is he going to point to their peace? Their lives are being ravaged. Is he going to point to their goodness, all the good things that they have done? Is he going to point to the good things they have done to assure them that God is still with them? What if they've sinned? Is he going to promise them deliverance? Is that going to be their hope? No. He can't promise that. Is, is he going to promise them like the twisting of this verse that, that everything is going to get better? He doesn't. When Christ was wounded, you were healed. You were healed from running away from God. God is with you, not on the basis of things that you have done, not on your decisions, not on, the, not on how good you've been or how well you've kept your faith or how well you've done this or that. You are with God because Christ was wounded for no other reason. No other reason. The next verse. It says, for you were straying like sheep, but for now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The healing of God brought them back to God. That is what they must be assured of. They cannot be assured of anything working out. They must be assured that they belong to God. And now God is not their judge. He is now their shepherd. They do not stand under the anger of God anymore. They stand under Christ's Wonderful, great, and good care. Jesus is now no one that stands against them in judgment. Jesus is now the guardian and the shepherd of their souls. He's called their, oh, his, they are now in the care of Christ as an overseer. And the New American Standard says, guardian. They are now being guarded by Jesus himself. And they will fall back from that if they think that they're in that place because of anything they have done. He can't promise them anything. 
If you're doubting, he says, has Christ been wounded? Are you despairing? Has Christ been wounded? Are you lost in your sin and you feel guilty? Do I still belong to God? I don't know. Has Christ been wounded? Yes. Yes. So you have been brought to God. Nothing can change that. Can anything remove the wounds of Christ? Nothing. Have you ever thought about this? In in Revelation, it talks about that Jesus, oh boy, stands in eternity. Stands in eternity as a lamb that was slain. That means that he still bears the wounds on his body in heaven for us eternally. Nothing. He always lives to make intercession for us. Nothing, absolutely nothing can take away his wounds. Nothing. You can't sin your way out of God's overseeing guardian care. He's made provision for that in repentance and faith in what he has done. That's the assurance that he gives. So, in light of that, Peter doesn't end there. He goes on a few more verses and he says this. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties upon him. None of this means that we don't continue to pray and ask God to make much of himself in delivering us from whatever ails us. Nothing. This is the way I this is the way it works in my head. This is the way that, that I approach this. And again, I I'm so reticent to prescribe something because I don't go through what you go through. This is but this is how it works. First, recognize that in ways we won't fully understand, God is in control, even in our suffering. Second, Ask first, God, what are you doing to me in this? What are you saying? What do you want in me as a result of what I'm going through? God, what have I been trusting in besides you? Where have my loyalties gone that are robbing me of joy in you and your glory? Next, find yourself in the Lord. Do what all you have to do. Ask God to make you know Jesus as your real life and as your real joy. Do that. And lastly, ask that God would make much of himself through you. First, by doing all all of this in you, and then ask him to make much of himself by answering your prayers for deliverance. Ask God to make much of himself by restoring your health and making your bodies whole. That is what God allows us to do for our joy and for his glory. So, amen.